My apologies for going so long now without a podcast. I've been traveling a good deal, doing talks, readings, and storytelling festivals across Texas, and so I've been away from my podcast theme, Beyond Texas. But I have a great story today to share with you by one of the finest storytellers of the last century. I'm not going to focus on his best-known work, you already know it, but his lesser-known work I'll share is no less inspiring. His name, which is very hard to say properly, Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. There is no doubt that Antoine de Saint-Exupéry was an extraordinary man, a pioneer in aviation and a pioneer in literature. My wife said, if you're exceptionally lucky in life, you get to have an extraordinary talent, just one. But he had two, and two that empowered each other. It's true. He was a pilot in the age of Lindbergh, one of the first generation of airmail carriers, test pilots, and reconnaissance pilots. He delivered mail across the Mediterranean in North Africa and lived for a while in South America flying airmail across Patagonia and the Andes. And all this time in the air, he was developing his writing talent that would one day produce The Little Prince, one of the world's greatest books now translated into 300 languages. It was his flying accident I'm going to share with you today that resulted in the little prince. Exupery loved to fly. He also loved to read and write, and he often did them together. Once in Tunis in North Africa, people waited an hour for him to land. He just kept circling the airport. When he finally landed, they asked, Why did you wait so long to land? And he said, I had to finish reading this book. I can relate to that. He also wrote while flying, inspired by the clouds and landscapes below. As Saul Bellow once said, We are the first generation to dream down at the clouds. The book I'm going to read from today is Wind, Sand, and Stars. It was originally titled Land of Men, but the title changed in later editions. It's on the National Geographic list of great books by explorers. A general review of the book from the Britannica has this to say, Wind, Sand, and Stars is a collection of philosophical musings, meditations, anecdotes, and reminiscences about flying, the universe, politics, the Spanish Civil War, the North African desert, Tierra del Fuego, and the heroism and nobility of both ordinary people and fellow pilots. The book includes Saint-Exupéry's journalistic reportage from Moscow, accounts of his surviving a crash in the Libyan desert, and the story of the heroic survival of a pilot whose plane crashed in the Andes Mountains in winter. And here's a couple of reviews of the book from general readers on Amazon. John Fang says that reading Antoine de Saint-Exupéry's Wind, Sand, and Stars is like drinking a bottle of French wine. The first few sips are remarkable, profound, heartwarming, spirit-freeing, and immensely enjoyable. And it just gets better. And from C.E. Stevens, one can't help but feel that the title, omitting the all-important human aspect of the original Land of Men title, and the billing as a top adventure book of all time are a bit misleading. 
not because this book isn't a fabulous adventure, nor that Saint-Exupéry doesn't portray the wind, sand, and stars with incredible beauty, but rather because, as Saint-Exupéry states explicitly himself, his main interest is not the sky, but rather the earth he flies over and the people that inhabit it. As I noted earlier, it was a flying accident that resulted in a near-death experience which led to the idea for the little prince. He and his co-pilot and mechanic, André Previtt, were trying to set a flying speed record in flying from Paris to Saigon when they crash-landed without warning on a high hill or mesa in the Egyptian desert a couple of hundred miles northwest of Cairo. Exupery and Previtt walked away from the accident but were stuck a 110-degree heat with only a few grapes, an orange, a quarter thermos of coffee, and a few sips of wine. They didn't know where they were. They didn't know if the Nile was west of them or east of them. Exupery guessed right. Had they gone the other way, they would have died. As we shall see, they almost died anyway. Here's the story. We still have two hours of daylight. Before we crossed into Tripolitana, I took off my glare glasses. The sands were golden under the slanting rays of the sun. How empty of life is this planet of ours? Once again it struck me that its rivers, its woods, its human habitations were the product of chance, of fortuitous conjunctions of circumstance. What a great deal of the earth's surface is given over to rock and sand. But all this was not my affair. My world was the world of flight. Already I could feel the oncoming night within which I should be enclosed as in the precincts of a temple, enclosed in the temple of night for the accomplishment of secret rites and absorption in inviolable contemplation. Already this profane world was beginning to fade out. Soon it would vanish altogether, this landscape was still laved in golden sunlight, but already something was evaporating out of it. I know nothing, nothing in the world, equal to the wonder of nightfall in the air. Those who have been enthralled by the witchery of flying will know what I mean. I do not speak of the men who, among other sports, enjoy taking a turn in a plane. I speak of those who fly professionally, and have sacrificed much to their craft, Mermos once said, it's worth it. It's worth the final smash-up. No question about it, but the reason is hard to formulate. A novice taking orders could appreciate this ascension towards the essence of things. Since his profession, too, is one of renunciation, he renounces the world, he renounces riches, he renounces the love of women, and by renunciation he discovers his hidden God. I, too, in this flight am renouncing things. I am giving up the broad golden surfaces that would befriend me if my engines were to fail. I am giving up the landmarks by which I might be taking my bearings. I am giving up the profiles of mountains against the sky and would warn me of pitfalls. I am plunging into the night. I am navigating. I have on my side only the stars. If I had made the time, I imagined we were certainly approaching the Nile. 
With a little luck, I might be able to spot the river through the rifts of clouds, but they were getting rare. I dared not come down, for it was actually lower than I thought. I was still over high-lying country. Thus far, I was entirely without anxiety. My only fear was that I might presently be wasting time. I decided that I would take things easy until I had flown four and a quarter hours. After that, even in a dead calm, which was highly unlikely, I should have crossed the Nile. A green star appeared ahead of me, flashing like a lighthouse. Was it a lighthouse? Or really a star? I took no pleasure from this supernatural gleam the star of the Magi might have seen, this dangerous decoy. Previtt, meanwhile, had waked up and turned his electric torch on the engine dials, and I waved him off, waved off his torch. We had just sailed into the clear between two clouds, and I was busy staring below. Previtt went back to sleep. The gap in the clouds was no help. There was nothing below. Four hours and five minutes in the air, Previtt awoke and sat down beside me. I'll bet we're near Cairo, he said. We must be. What's that? Is that a star, or is it a, a lighthouse? I began a slow descent, intending to slip under the mass of clouds. Meanwhile, I had had a look at my map. One thing was sure. The land below me lay at sea level, and there was no risk of conking against a hill. Down I went, flying due north, so that the lights of the cities would strike square into my windows. I must have overflown them, and should therefore see them on my left. Now I was flying below the cumulus, but alongside was another cloud hanging lower down on the left. I swerved so as not to be caught in its net, and I headed north-northeast. This second cloud bank certainly went down a long way, but it blocked my view of the horizon. I dared not give up any more altitude. My, altit my altimeter registered 1,200 feet, but I had no notion of the atmospheric pressure here. Private leaned towards me, and I shouted to him, I'm going out to sea. I'd rather come down on it than risk a crash here. As a matter of fact, there was nothing to prove that we had not drifted over the sea already. Below that cloud bank, visibility was nil. I hugged my window, trying to read below me to discover flares, signs of life. I was a man raking dead ashes, trying in vain to retrieve the flame of life in a hearth. Suddenly, at that very instant, oh, I am quite sure that was all I said, oh. I am quite sure that all I felt was a terrific crash that rocked our world to its foundations. We had crashed against the earth at 170 miles an hour. I am quite sure that in the split second that followed, all I expected was the great flash of ruddy light of the explosion in which Previtt and I were to be blown up together. Neither he nor I had felt the least emotion of any kind. All I could observe in myself was an extraordinary tense feeling of expectancy, the expectancy of that resplendent star in which we were to vanish within the second. But there was no ruddy star. Instead, there was a sort of earthquake that splintered our cabin and ripped away the windows, blue sheets of metal hurtling through space a hundred yards away and filled our very entrails with its roar. The ship quivered like a knife-blade thrown from a distance into a block of oak, and its anger mashed us as if we were just so much pulp. One second, two seconds passed, and the plane still quivered while I waited with a grotesque impatience for the forces within it to burst like a bomb. 
but the subterranean quakings went on without a climax of eruption, while I marveled uncomprehendingly at its invisible travail. I was baffled by the quaking, the anger, the interminable postponement, five seconds past six seconds, and suddenly we were seized by a spinning motion, a shock that jerked our cigarettes out of the window, pulverized the starboard wing, and then nothing, nothing but a frozen immobility. I shouted to Previtt, jump, and in that instant he cried out, fire, we dove together through the wrecked window and found ourselves standing side by side, sixty feet from the plane. I said, Are you hurt? He answered, Not a bit. But he was rubbing his knee. Better run your hands over yourself, I said. Move about a bit. Sure no bones are broken? He answered, I'm all right. I'm all right. It's that emergency pump. It got me on the knee. Why we were not blown up, I don't know. I switched on my electric torch and went back over the furrow in the ground traced by the plane. 250 yards from where we stopped the ship had begun to shed the twisted iron and sheet metal that spattered the sand the length of our traces and we were to see when day came that we had run almost tangentially into a gentle slope at the top of a barren plateau. At the point of impact there was a hole in the sand that looked as if it had been made by a plow. Maintaining an even keel, the plane had run its course with the fury and the tail lashings of a reptile gliding on its belly at the rate of 170 miles an hour. We owed our lives to the fact that this desert was surfaced with round black pebbles which had rolled over and over like ball bearings beneath us. They must have rained upward to the heavens as we shot through them. Previtt disconnected the batteries for fear of fire by short circuit. I leaned against the motor and turned the situation over in my mind. I had been flying high for four hours and a quarter, possibly with the thirty-mile following wind. I had been jolted a good deal if the wind had changed since the weather people forecasted it. I was unable to say into what quarter it had veered. All I could make out was that we had crashed in the empty square two hundred and fifty miles on each side. Previtt came up and sat down beside me. I can't believe we're alive, he said. I said nothing. Even that thought could not cheer me. A germ of an idea was at work in my mind. Telling Previtt to switch on his torch as a landmark, I walked straight out, scrutinizing the ground in the light of my own torch as I went. I went forward slowly, swung around in a wide arc, changed direction a number of times. I kept my eyes fixed on the ground like a man hunting a lost ring. Only a little while before... I had been straining just as hard to see a gleam of light from the air. Through the darkness I went, bowed over the traveling disk of white light, just as I thought, I said to myself, and went slowly back to the plane. I sat down beside the cabin and ruminated. I had been looking for a reason to hope and had failed to find it. I had been looking for a sign of life and no sign of life had appeared. Previtt. I couldn't find a single blade of grass. Previtt said nothing, and I was not sure he had understood. Well, we could talk about it again when the curtain rose at dawn. Meanwhile, I was dead tired, and all I could think was 250 miles, more or less, out in the desert. Suddenly, I jumped to my feet. Water, I said. 
Gas tanks and oil tanks were smashed in, so was our supply of drinking water. The sand had drunk everything. We found a pint of coffee in a battered thermos flask and a half pint of white wine in another. We filtered both and poured them into one flask. There were some grapes, too, and a single orange. Meanwhile, I was computing. All this will last us five hours of tramping in the sun. We crawled into the cabin and waited for dawn. I stretched out, and as I settled down to sleep, I took stock of our situation. We didn't know where we were. We had less than a quart of liquid between us. If we were not too far off the Benghazi-Cairo lane, we should be found in a week, and that would be too late. Yet it was the best we could hope for. If, on the other hand, we had drifted off our course, we shouldn't be found in six months. One thing was sure. We could not count on being picked up by a plane. The men who would come out for us would have 2,000 miles to cover. You know, it's a shame, Previtt said suddenly. What's a shame? That we didn't crash properly and just get it over with. It seemed pretty early to be throwing in one's hand. Previtt and I pulled ourselves together. There was still a chance, slender as it was, that we might be saved miraculously by a plane. On the other hand, we couldn't stay here and perhaps miss a nearby oasis. We would walk all day and come back to the plane before dark, and before going off we would write our plan in huge letters in the sand. With this I curled up and settled down to sleep. I was happy to go to sleep. My weariness wrapped me round like a multiple presence. I was not alone in the desert. My drowsiness was peopled with voices and memories and whispered confidences. I was not yet thirsty. I felt strong and I surrendered myself to sleep. Reality lost ground before the advance of dreams. Ah, but things were different when I awoke. In times past, I have loved the Sahara. I have spent nights alone in the path of marauding tribes, and have walked up with untroubled mind in the golden emptiness of the desert, where the wind like a sea had raised sand waves upon its surface. Asleep under the wing of my plane, I have looked forward with confidence to being rescued next day. But this was not the Sahara. Previtt and I walked along the slopes of rolling mounds. The ground was sand covered over with a single layer of shining black pebbles. They gleamed like metal scales, and all the domes about us shone like coats of mail. We had dropped down into a mineral world— and were hemmed in by iron hills. When we reached the top of the first crest, we saw in the distance another just like it, black and gleaming, and as we walked we scraped the ground with our boots, marking a trail over which to return to the plain. We went forward with the sun in our eyes. It was not logical to go due east like this, for everything, the weather reports, the duration of the flight, had made it plain that we had crossed the Nile. But I had started tentatively towards the west and had felt a vague foreboding, so I had put off the west till tomorrow. In the same way, provisionally, I had given up going north, though that led to the sea. Three days later, when scourged by thirst into abandoning the plain and walking straight on until we dropped in our tracks, it was still eastward that we tramped. More precisely, we walked east-northeast, 
and this too was in defiance of all reason and even all hope, yet after we had been rescued, we discovered that if we had gone any other direction, we should have been lost. Northward we should never have had the endurance to reach the sea, and absurd as it may appear, it seems to me now, since I had no other motive, that I must have chosen the east simply because... It was by going eastward that Guillemet had been saved in the Andes, after I had hunted for him everywhere. In a confused way, the east had become for me the direction of life. We walked on for five hours, and then the landscape changed. A river of sand seemed to be running through a valley, and we followed the riverbed, taking long strides in order to cover as much ground as possible and to get back to the plain before night fell, if our march was in vain. The heat rose, and with it came the mirages. But these were still the commonplace kind, sheets of water that materialized and then vanished as we neared them. We decided to cross the valley of sand and climb the highest dome in order to look round the horizon. This was after six hours of march, in which, striding along, we must have covered twenty miles. When we had struggled up to the top of the black hump, we sat down and looked at each other. At our feet lay our valley of sand, opening into a desert of sand whose dazzling brightness seared our eyes. As far as the eye could see lay empty space. But in that space, the play of light created mirages which, this time, were of a disturbing kind, fortresses and minarets, angular geometric hulks. I could see also a black mass that pretended to be vegetation, overhung by the last of those clouds that dissolve during the day only to return at night. This mass of vegetation was the shadow of a cumulus. It was no good going on. The experiment was a failure. We would have to go back to our plane to the red and white beacon, which perhaps would be picked out by a flyer. I was not staking great hopes on a rescue party, but it did seem to be our last chance of salvation. In any case, we had to get back to our few drops of liquid, for our throats were parched. We were imprisoned in this iron circle, captives of the curt dictatorship of thirst. And yet, how hard it was to turn back when there was a chance that we might be on the road to life. Beyond the mirages, the horizon was perhaps rich in veritable treasures, in meadows and runnels of sweet water. I knew I was doing the right thing by returning to the plain, and yet, as I swung round and started back, I was filled with portents of disaster. We were resting on the ground beside the plain, nearly forty miles of wandering this day. The last drop of liquid had been drained. No sign of life had appeared to the east— no plane had soared overhead. How long should we be able to hold out? Already our thirst was terrible. That brings us to the end of part one of this episode of Beyond Texas. Next week we'll have the exciting conclusion of how Exupery and Previt find their way out of the desert. For Beyond Texas, I'm W.F. Strong. <laughs>